This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. I'm talking with Roger Atkins for our inaugural episode of EV Boom here. Roger is uh, from the UK, but he's in LA right now for the LA Auto Show. And we figured this first chat, we'll f- of course get to some Tesla topics, you know, Tesla sort of, uh, you can't talk about EVs and not talk about Tesla, but we're going to start off this chat about talking about the Ford Mach-E. Uh, Roger, what are your first uh, on the ground initial thoughts on the Mach-E? Well, first and foremost, Zach, thanks for uh, hooking up with me. And it's amazing to be here in a hotel in California. I feel like I should be singing an Eagles song at that point. Um, Strictly speaking, I'm not here for the LA show, actually. I came here last weekend with a company called Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. And they're forensic analysts of where all the constituent parts of batteries are coming together. So the supply chain of anodes and cathodes, you know, lithium, um, cobalt, etc. And um, we've got Dr. Maximilian Holland has written a handful of articles for us based on their, their research, their work, which I highly recommend. Very fascinating work. And, you know, a little different from some of the other players in this EV, EV uh, forecasting and data collection space. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to look at it holistically. So um, yes, I am here. And yes, I'm going to do something in regard to the LA Auto Show, but not as such go to it. I'm going to the pre-launch of the Ford EV uh, this weekend. It's going to be on Sunday. And uh, there should be some pretty interesting stuff. I'm going to hook up with a few friends. Alex Guberman, I think you know. Chelsea Sexton, you know, of course. Um, and there'll be, I think, an interesting crowd and a very interesting story, I hope, to come out of that. Yeah. And so so regarding, um, do you have anything more on Benchmark that you can talk about? Or is that for another later, oh, later time? A ton of stuff. Um, <laughs> I put up a couple of videos on LinkedIn. So I interviewed Simon Moores, who's the principal uh, behind that company. Um, he's an amazing young guy. He's put this business together only a few years ago. And um, he was presenting to the Senate Committee on Energy back in February, and I spotted that video on LinkedIn. So hooked up with him, and and, and here I am in LA with his team. Um, and in the meantime, he's been to the White House. He was at the Pentagon uh, a couple of weeks ago, because of course, this all fits into energy security in and around not just automotive EV batteries, but you know, renewable energy storage. And and all of these grand ambitions that you have, I have, all our friends have in the kind of big EV world, if they can't be fulfilled by a credible supply chain, timely s- supply chain, then the stuff doesn't happen. So I felt it was important to come along this week. So I've been hosting a couple of panels, complete, Zach, completely out of my depth. 
you know, I kind of didn't do chemistry at school, or if I did, I forgot. So getting to understand some of these basic elements of how stuff comes together, what mixes in a battery, um, I kind of thought I knew, but really in, in, in ref, on reflection, I knew nothing. Or but, very you've got, little. but you've got two benefits. One, you've got a British accent, so you're going to sound smart to all those people. And two, <laughs> two you're really a, a great bullshitter. I think you're, you must be a master bullshitter. I don't, I don't even know this from proof. I just somehow, it's like one of those uh, Bill Maher. I don't know this for a fact, but I know it's true. <laughs> okay, I'm bang to rights. Guilty as charged. You suss me out. Uh, of you, course I am. Look, look, I, I, I'm a, I've, as I said to many of the people I brought onto the stage, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. And the good thing of being at an event like that is you're, in, you're with masters of one. So give you, for instance, um, Dr. Anita Sengupta came and spoke to the crowd and she is a rocket scientist. She's oh, reading what she's done and achieved and she's now working on um, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And you sit there thinking, ah, this isn't going to happen. No, I'm not sure about this. Mm, don't really know. And then you, you remind yourself, hang on a second. She's a rocket scientist. She's worked for years at NASA. She's put things on the International Space Station, sent things into deep space. It's like these aren't these yeah, are look, people look, that know stuff. Listen, I mean, I when we started getting pushed to cover electric vertical takeoff and landing stuff, electric air, uh, and aircraft in this new realm new world uh and some people started covering it i was sort of like ah you know it's a bit early to talk about this you know even to elon musk is not into this yet you know it's not not time yet as we've gotten it covered more and more and this is like 99 percent through um nicholas art who's uh, obsessed with it and, and really good at tracking what's going on um and i edit the articles it's 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 like uh this is happening. <laughs> this is like, okay, it takes time. There's still, you know, work needs to be done, but it's happening. And you've got like every mate, as Nicholas points out in many articles, you've got Airbus, Boeing, you know, every name in the, in the industry is in this now. They, they have investments in like one to, you know, one to 20 different uh, avenues. So the, it's really, it's, it's, you know, and like, like you said, you know, sitting on stage with an expert like that it sort of starts to sink in. Hey, this is not coming from some crazy people on the internet this is from real people who do rocket science <laughs> exactly and what you equally understand as you and i again have on the electric vehicle journey um, over these years is that necessity is the mother of invention if there's an issue and a problem that needs to be resolved uh, the necessity then people, creative people, clever people, especially when they collaborate, can come up with a solution. And, and you know, LA, more than any other place you can go to, well, maybe other than Tokyo, uh, but most places in the world, congestion is the problem as much as pollution. And they kind of, of course, go hand in hand. Yeah, um, Nick, Nicholas lives in uh, Long Beach. So <laughs> he's, he's often reminding us of his horrible congestion and pollution in, in, that, in that area of that Los Angeles uh, area. Uh, well, you, you might have just shared it, but do you have any sort of big take home uh, kind of reflection from oh, that? Yes. From that oh, yes, my friend, Mr. Zachary Shahan, I most certainly do. Get ready for this one. You ready? Are you yes. sitting down? Yes, yes. This was told to me by Lithium Joe. Now, I can't remember his, his proper name, but I called him Lithium Joe. He he is apparently, and I'm, I have that on good authority, the world expert on lithium supply. He has a podcast. He's a New York dude. I had a little interview with him as well that hasn't popped up yet, but it will do. 
he said, and I made a note of it when he was talking to some people and sort of followed up with, he said that by 2025, given the current lithium uh, mining proposition and supply chain, the most EVs we could have was 7%. And that 7% of probably around 90 million vehicles being made. So regardless of what this manufacturer, the, the other manufacturer, this country, that other expert wants to say, if... But just to just be clear... Bear in mind it's lithium, Joe. Just to be know, clear, this is assuming what's currently under development. It's not assuming what might, uh, you know, some new development that might open up next, next yeah, month but, or, or next... But Zach, here's the thing, my friend. Once you get into understanding even the basics of mining, you, you can see the chronology of these things between finding deposits, between uh, assessing how that can work, going through all the licensing process. There's a, such a ton of stuff to do before you even get anywhere near drilling or mining and, you know, the way... We would think of it. So he he knows forensically what that structure is around the world of existing resources and, and where they are. And to a certain extent, it it feels counterintuitive because at the moment there's an oversupply of lithium because, of course, a lot of people have been expecting an EV revolution to kick off, kick off um, well by now, and, and it hasn't. And there's been a slight downturn in China, as we know, there's a reason for that. Um, so you might be forgiven for thinking, well, no, there isn't a problem. But if you put together year on year on year of 90 odd million vehicles being made each of those years with more and more being electric vehicles, Lithium Joe, and bear in mind, he's, he's Lithium Joe. He knows stuff. He says 7% max. And, you know, I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to believe him that. And I think yeah. people need to then reconcile what does that mean for further thinking and planning and all you know, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it, it's definitely a fascinating topic. And I wanted to have uh, actually many of our clean tech talk episodes focus on this topic specifically. We've, we've, uh, I've interviewed in the past Bloomberg New Energy Finance people about these topics and, and other people. And uh, it's, um, uh, you know, on the, on the big picture, grand scheme of things, you know, as there's demand, there will be supply as investments go into the, the field. And, and, you know, as they see opportunity to make money, you know, more, uh, more people will invest in, in developing these resources. So there's no real big picture long term uh, concern because lithium is highly abundant. Uh, and the question is all about timing and that kind of push and pull, stop and go, leapfrog yeah, issue. L- l- and, let me just forgive me for interrupting you that. You- and you're saying what I would have been saying no, even no, I'm, just a I'm week saying, ago. I'm not saying in the. I'm not saying for the next uh, for that time frame. I'm saying before you get into time frames. But then you have to get into the issue of time frames and how much is developed now, how much is under development that needs to be. You know, how much is under development now that will be ready in seven years or in five years. And yeah, I understand. Yeah, but Zach, but when you said there's an abundance of lithium on the planet, you're right. But here's the thing. Mm. Automotive grade lithium is what we have to produce and deliver to to make batteries, to make them safe, durable, and perform well. So once you start to get into the detail of it, the devil of the detail, it isn't just that we've got lithium or we haven't, or it's there or it's over here. It's it's about quality then. It's about... um, uh, you know, yeah, for sure. And, I, and I'm, is a very different proposition. For sure. And I totally understand that there might be sometimes seven to 10 year timescales to go from deciding to do something to having it ready for the market. And I think, I think that's the big question that you end up with, with a lot of these discussions is uh, how much is, you know, really, and, and this guy obviously has 
tracking the market has a clear opinion. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, the, the, the question is always how much is really going to be, you know, ready by 2025 or whatever. And, you know, Volkswagen has this goal of, you know, 25% EVs by 2025. That would be way more than 7%. So that would mean it would have a dramatic share of the EV market if that's true, if both of those things mm. are true. If they have 25% share and there's only 7% share in the overall market, that would put, you know, Tesla, Volkswagen at a kind of dominant position in an EV share, presume if, they, if they were hitting Zach. If they were yeah. hitting their targets, but it's also you know there. I mean, I no no offense to lithium, Joe. I'm sure he knows a hundred times more about lithium. <laughs> but I'm all, I'm also curious how much can be hidden. You know, how much Tesla could be doing internally or Volkswagen that's somehow hidden from his tracking or his. And I mean, maybe none of it. Maybe nothing. Maybe zero percent. Maybe he's got a full. Uh, and this is going to be the fascinating discussion and question in the coming years. Uh, but uh, that's really that's interesting. I think we need a full series or, or at least article on on that. If you wanna if you wanna follow up with Lithium Joe and and you know sort of tease out his his points and put them into a long form uh, text, that would be really really uh, exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no I, I, look, we we all know the battery is a challenge, um, and we all know that like everything in life, the devil's in the details. So. All I'm really saying is that I think it pays to to try and get that um, holistic sense of where this where this yeah, journey is. Going. We w- we want to be um, realistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We don't want to think we can be. A, I mean, there, this is the kind of you know. Some people think there's no way 25 percent by 2025. Some people say there's no way less than 50 percent EVs by 2025. So you have this kind of like dramatically different there's no way statements, you know. So, so uh, obviously some people are going to be hugely wrong from reality. Uh, we, you know, we'll see who. But uh, the question, you know, with all these EV rollouts, EV plans is always like the, the question, you know, you and I and people like us, you know, get to is like, okay, but how much battery supply do you have prepared for that? How much, how much do you have lined up to actually produce this many EVs. So is it a serious EV? Is it a serious effort or no? Do you have the batteries? So, I mean, it's clear that this statement is 7% is a max, no matter what people do uh, for the global market. And uh, that's going to be an interesting thing to track and watch. But uh, mm, so moving, so. On, moving on to the, from the batteries, uh, a serious effort that we see rolling out this weekend. Uh, there's leaked, uh, we were recording before the rollout, but there's been leaked photos and prices and all this. Jalopnik, for example, has a long article with um, photos of the the Ford Mach-E and yeah, uh, pricing and, it, and specs. It. Yep. And uh, it's, it looks, I mean, my top line view, it looks like a really a compelling, attractive electric vehicle. It uses Ford's like Mustang, you know, macho mustang you know hardcore brand that's that's really a key brand a key feature of of a ford lineup and um looks to have compelling you know specs and everything so it it looks like ford wants to jump into the ev world for real now with a with a real effort and then you know the ford f-150 electric should could potentially also so what what are your thoughts on that on them here's the thing join two things up henry ford revolutionized the automotive industry with the Model T Ford. Okay, he's long gone, but there's Bill Ford. You know, his blood is still there in the company. They triggered that revolution. Ford recently invested in Rivian, as you know, $500 million alongside uh, Amazon, $750 million. Um, 
And I think what we're going to see on Sunday or what we will have seen, so as you say, we're recording this now on on Friday um, and people will have seen this stuff. So I'm going to make a prediction that people will now hear I'm either right or wrong. I think some of the story we're going to hear on Sunday is going to be about electric vans. I think it's going to be a platform story. I think as much as, of course, it's going to be about this particular product, which is great. And again, the hookup with Rivian, there's Rivian going, at, if you like, the classic um, macho American kind of haul it all around vehicle and turning it into an electric vehicle. That's, that's fantastic. When I, when I first saw that, I think it was a couple of years ago, actually, to be, you know, don't want to say boastful, but it was. Um, I thought that's the soft underbelly of kind of macho America. If you make that an EV with a fantastic range, with all the abilities it needs to have, my word, are you going to just completely change mindset? So, that's Rivian, which of course is now connected to Ford. I think Ford are going to use some and, of that platform and, capability well, to make electric trucks. That's well, what's going to happen. I've seen that Ford is supposedly not using Rivian for the F-150 electric, that that's a separate, they're, they're investing in Rivian and using the platform for something, but, uh, but the Ford F-150 is supposedly developed in-house aside from, I mean, Rivian, but this is, you know, mm, I'm, we'll not sh- I'm not sure, you know, how, how much anything, you can trust anything you hear at this stage, but, but we'll see. But here's the thing, going on that topic, the investment in electric, given people have got so much sunk cost in the internal combustion engine until what well, you could argue now. The challenge of kind of switching horses midstream, the epic challenge of investing in all of the R&D that you must invest in with electrification programs is borderline crippling to even some of the biggest manufacturers in the world. You heard this yesterday with da- on Thursday with Daimler's announcement to their investors about what the journey ahead was going to be. It was not going to be fun. It was going to be uh, a challenge to profitability that was going to reduce because they're going to have to haul so much of the money that they would have given to shareholders into R&D for electrification. So by definition, working with other people trying to get a jump ahead by working with, you know, one of these so-called crazy upstarts that turns out to be an amazing company after all. Do you remember that crazy upstart about 14, 15 years ago, little company called Tesla? They seem to have like progressed and done pretty well. And I think Rivian, what have they been going for? Nine years? They've been in stealth for most of that. And I think then for a company like Ford, what an astute way of spending $500 million. I think it's absolutely spot on. Whoever guided and you know that investment, I think they just they know exactly what they were doing. Um, yeah, well, as I say again, I mean, you know, I, I, well, I think that point is really. I mean, we we wrote about this. I'm sure you've been thinking about it for many years. We wrote about I wrote about this uh, three years ago and republished the article in July with the title "Is This Why Automakers Are So Slow to Electrify." And what I did is I ran, I went through the the financials and and manufacturing capacity and everything of of, uh, of some major automakers, one in, in particular, and I didn't name it, but um, but then I did a, a fake scenario of you know what would happen with these eighteen factory eighteen engine factories, eighty four factories in gen, in total, eighty four billion dollars invested in these factories. Uh, what would happen, you know, if this company, which I called Board, B-O-R-D, uh, if Board quickly transitioned to electric vehicles, and it, you know they would be crushed, they would be they would be dead. It would be like yeah. uh, they'd have 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 just you know so many sunk sunk assets, sunk investments, and uh, 
and such a financial challenge transitioning quickly that it's just it's it's harder than if Tesla or Rivian did it. And you know, Daimler. Of course, it is. They're clean sheet. Yeah, and Daimler came out sheet. and said, said the same a couple of days ago. Volkswagen's heads have said every, it's it's becoming something they have to say. Maybe you can speak a little bit more about why they're out there saying it now or, or more recently when it was clear for years but but not said. Well, I think for some of them, they kind of hoped it wouldn't happen and they hoped Tesla would maybe fall away. They hoped the momentum towards electric vehicles would would slow down. They didn't predict that you'd have a schoolgirl from Sweden swanning around the world telling everybody that, you know, you know, the end of the world is nigh. And, um, you know, her message is pretty brutal. And, you know, you know who we're talking about. Um, so I think the combination of social media, the influence of legislation kind of picking up, the mayors in cities saying air quality, you know, it's not good enough and we're not going to wait for you to fix it. We're going to tell you right now, you can't drive a car here. So all of that combines to almost like a perfect storm. And you add to that the epic thing of China, which has had year on year on year growth in uh, vehicle volume suddenly then slowing down. And it's not just the removal of incentives or the dilution of incentives of EVs, new energy vehicles in China. It's also possibly something much more systemic, which is that um, you've got to a kind of um, saturation point in China. Um, It's only kind of about, I think it's around 880 people out of a thousand own a car in China. And there's a pent up demand because, you know, of the structure and how they issue license plates, et cetera. But there simply isn't the room in China for more cars. It's a big country. Yeah, it's a massive country, but it's condensed into mega cities. So the majority of the population live in cities. And if they're all kind of squashed together, um, sure is a better phrase than, than squashed together, but um, it, it's just like in Tokyo and all these other mega cities, there's no room for people to own a car. So what's What's happening, I think, is that we're starting to see, essentially, people talk about peak oil. This is peak car. It's that the younger generation of people coming through now are not getting driving licenses and not buying cars. It's not the status symbol it used to be. And more than anything else, they can't afford it and there's no room. Yeah, well, this is a fascinating topic we'll have to skip for this episode. But Maximilian Holland, again, he did a story earlier this year about how we've had peak fossil fuel car for sure, because uh, basically as the global auto market has been stagnant or, you know, electric, the electric vehicle market has risen, which fundamentally means the gas, the fossil fossil vehicle, fossil fuel vehicle market has dropped and we've had peak fossil fuel. And there's actually been two years of this, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, it was a January, February article. And so, and so you sort of, as the EV market rises and the other market is stagnant, the overall market is stagnant or drops, you have just a, a pretty fast drop off of fossil fuel vehicles that the auto industry has to deal with as a kind of um, probably departure from what they expected and what they, what they had invested into and what the shareholders expect, et cetera. Etc. Etc. But uh, but skipping that, I would go to uh, a topic I think you would really enjoy talking about more. You just started talking about if you have this situation. Let's let's pre- pretend we have this uh, lithium Joe situation of seven percent EV market share in twenty twenty five. Nothing more, uh, nothing less. And you have the ch- you know the challenge basically from that combined with all those you know, climate air pollution issues, governments demanding EVs. What, uh, how do you think you best maximize that, that battery capacity, battery, battery supply to have the most 
positive net overall effect on climate and, and emissions? Great question. Great question. I think it's quite, a, it's a really good question. Um, I, I well, ask well, this like, question in part because I know what you focus on. And I know, <laughs> I know yeah. two, topic, two topics you love talking about. So that this leads into them. Yeah. Well, if you think of the, the bigger challenge, I, I will answer your question. Um, but just for a second, the bigger challenge is, is obviously the climate, climatic change and the catastrophe that, that it could become. Um, or is it, or is it, or is already becoming? Some, some will say um, that we we have to mimic nature by shifting from being a linear economy to being a circular economy. What does that mean? It means lots of things, but it fundamentally means maximizing efficiency and maximizing utilization. A car on the drive or in a car park at work or somewhere else for ninety percent of the day is not maximizing efficiency. So. What we must see is more sharing and more multimodal transport of people using better public transport, walking, cycling, and all of those things. And that's not going to work everywhere. Of course it isn't, partly to do with weather, partly to do with the structure of, of that country or that city. You know, it's all well and good if you have a nice, tidy city that's in a lovely place and you fancy walking, but if it's cold and wet and windy and there's a big distance between everywhere, that's not quite the same. Um, so we're going to see that. Another thing I'm sure we're going to see, and I think this is what you were alluding to, um, that I've been a big fan of for at least a decade is wireless charging. High power, automatic wireless charging that's safe, efficient, and either same price or cheaper than cable charging will come. It must come. And the other reason is partly, I would argue, that battery metric that um, my friend Joe in New York told me was that if you can transit the electrons into an electric vehicle on the fly or like with a taxi or bus when it's stopped or, you know, in a ta what they call them, taxi ranks, um, you can reduce the size of the battery that you need but still fulfill the range, still deliver the job, you know, task at hand. Um, and we've already seen that in America. There's a, uh, and I'm on the advisory board, so I have vested interest. Other, other systems are available. We've just put it like that. But the high power wireless charging capability of Momentum Dynamics out of Malvern, Pennsylvania is in my view, absolutely class leading and critical for, for what has to happen next. They've been running up to 300 kilowatt charging on electric buses, BYD buses, in the States for a couple of years. No fried cats, no mounted mobile phones. None of the things that people, I think, understandably, have often accused wireless charging of being either, you know, unsafe, inefficient, or whatever. Um, so that that is going to come, I'm pretty certain, um, Zach, in part to, you know, um, counterbalance that that challenge of, you know, where do all the batches come from? Um, well, so actually, sharing and we, wireless. We just wrote about the other day, uh, uh, Los Angeles just made the biggest electric bus order in the, in the United States in history, uh, 130 BYD electric buses. Uh, but I actually was not alluding to wireless charging. I'm happy you, you brought it up. It's, I think it's a really fascinating and important topic. And it, yeah, we, we, but uh, I was I was thinking that you would focus on on ride sharing vehicles. Uh, you know, the kind of vehicles you know driving many more miles a day than than your average vehicle because they're driving all day long, transporting people around, 
and uh, and delivery vehicles because I know you do a lot with the delivery vehicles and uh, basically vehicles that are going that you can drive as many you know many hours a day to get the most out of those batteries. Uh, so, uh, but and buses of course match up with that as well. They're driving a lot. Yeah, well, I kind of was talking about them indirectly. I, I, I know what you're saying, you know, because a taxi is a shared vehicle. It, and it always has been. Um, so, so yeah, and I mean, and I don't really like that term ride sharing for it because they are, these are, we're talking about taxis, so like uh, robo taxis, uh, or, uh, but, but, you know, they're not, they might be shared if, if these companies can get the software right to, to, you know, match rides well, but, but that's always been more of a, more of a branding than a, than an actual thing. But yeah, yeah. Speak a little as, as you wish about the, you know, this type of service and also delivery vehicles, which I, I know you, okay. you, you know a lot about. Yeah, well, 12 years ago, I was at Modec. That was a zero-emission truck startup company. Um, it ultimately failed, partly because of the um, economic downturn from 2008 onwards, partly because I guess we did things wrong, you know, including including myself, you know, how we told the story, how we tried to sell the vehicle. Um, um, you know, benefit of hindsight, there are different things I'd definitely do. Um, so the point of... Uh, making deliveries, if you think of the Pareto law, 80% of the pollution in cities is caused by 20% of the vehicles. Now, before anyone jumps up and down, I'm not saying that's an exact mathematical formula in every city in the world, but it's the principle. So if if that's the case, and that um, air quality is such a compelling uh, challenge and needs to be resolved, then you look at what those 20% of the vehicles are. And well, surprise, surprise, of course, they're the taxis, they're the buses and they're the delivery vans. So they're the things you you electrify first. And if you think of the principal challenges, which are diminishing, but have always been there of EVs, which are cost, range and time to charge. If you have uh, those commercial vehicles, they're typically urban operating, defined mileage and back to base. So at a stroke, that's a direct match for the challenge of cost, range, and time to charge. So you deal with the pollution issue, you have a practical solution, and increasingly in many cities, it's not a question of doing what's right or what, you know, the corporate strategy looks like, you know, looks good in the, in the annual report. It's what's cheaper to do, what, what is more cost-effective to run as a fleet. Once you get, that's the tipping point that we've been trying to get towards, and we're there in many, many places now. And I think that, you know, I tell you someone who's really got their head around this, Jeff Bezos. I'm convinced that Jeff Bezos, not only is he trying to fulfill the challenge of Amazon having to let people have packages in zero emission zones in, in cities, you know, how does he do that? How does he fulfill that? I think he's also understanding you can, you know, jump into two years, three years, five years, 10 years hence, where that's the only way you're going to deliver things. And, um, you know, he's a smart guy. When you, you think of that book that inspired him, Good to Great, was it Jim Collins, I think? Um, and you understand what that's about. It's preparing for the future, thinking what's coming, keeping it simple, understanding, you know, the basic um, levers for change, which are always to do with money somewhere along the line. Um, and so, so yeah, that's why I, I, I'm a big advocate of it. And rideshare, uh, I don't know, I've been using Uber Pool recently because I thought I can't, you know, I've got to practice what I preach. But I'll be honest with you, it hasn't always been like something I've enjoyed. You know, some dude jumps in with a hoodie on and he's had a few drinks and you're thinking, oh God, I didn't really want to be here. But, but 
so I think some of the rideshare challenge is as much cultural and other stuff as it is a technical thing. You know, how do we get the app to work? How do we get the thing to work? Um, a lot of it is just getting people to be more, uh, you know, prepared to to do that. Yeah, um, and I mean, I mean, uh, there's skeptics. I mean, <laughs> people like their privacy. They like their space. They like, uh, you know. So I, I think it's going to always have a bit of a challenge. Um, uh, but interesting stuff. I've I've been told a couple of times that. <laughs> that Jeff Bezos reads clean technica. I, I don't have much more proof than someone saying, some people saying that, but uh, uh, I've been curious to, you know, with that in mind, like to see some Amazon do more. Um, so it was, it was nice to, to see that investment in Rivian. Obviously he's a man of timing. <laughs> you know, he, he, you know, you don't become richest man in the world by uh, being bad at timing on a, <laughs> on a business sense. So I, perhaps, you know, for him, it's been a big thing about waiting for the perfect timing to to go in, in order to maximize the business use and and, and make it work. Of course, if it doesn't work, it doesn't. It's not going to go far. Uh, so, you know, perhaps you know we're going to see in the next you know five years a big explosion in electric uh, Amazon vehicles because it's uh, the the technology is ready for it uh, more than more you know really really ready for it. Uh, that'll be interesting to watch, I think. But um, but. He, Great stuff. I, let's let's. We said we talk about Tesla. Let's, let's get to Tesla before um, before it's too late. A uh, couple couple of questions regarding Tesla, but let's start with the the obvious the the Gigafactories. Um, the Chinese one that's just finished just got official license to uh, to produce and sell produce cars for the market. And um, Berlin. Uh, we, yeah, I'll let you go where you want to go with this, but uh, obviously this this shocked some people. Makes a lot of sense to other people. We have someone from Berlin, a shareholder, and uh, daily is involved on Clean Technica, and he they made the case for it earlier this year or last year because um, the political influence that it would have. That you know, if you really want to, if your mission is Tesla's mission to accelerate the transition to sustainable energy, you aren't just looking at it from a business sense, you're also looking at the political issue and how much you can push the political uh, matters. And although Elon's not a political guy, he's very practical and and big vision kind of person. And uh, putting a gigafactory in Berlin provides as much political power in Europe as you can get. (laughs) Right. So what do you, what are your thoughts on, on the Berlin situation and Chinese, if you want? 1962 JFK, one of his famous speeches, let them come to Berlin. And here we are now, 2019, and Elon's gone to Berlin. I think this is an incredible moment in electric vehicle story. I I really, truly do. That moment on stage on Thursday in Berlin, where the discussion was in Berlin? I think it was, wasn't it? Um, uh, I don't. I don't think it was Berlin, but I don't, okay. I'm not sure now. It's so, somewhere in Germany. But he was, yeah, getting getting the Auto Build Award. Yes, that's it. So, and um, that felt for me like a a, a a moment in time where it was like not Tesla had won. I wouldn't quite put it like that, but um, this was Vorsprung durch Tesla. This was this company that was going to finish and not survive 15 years ago. And they were going to finish and not survive 14 years ago, 13 years ago, 12 years ago. And they're still there. And it, it really felt like a pivotal moment. And also, look at who shared the stage with him. Who was there on the stage with him? Herbert Dees, Volkswagen. 
What's the closest car factory to Berlin? Do you know? Volkswagen. You know, I, I think of any of the OEMs that have really now, you know, grasped the nettle, are going to deal with the monumental challenge of shifting from internal combustion to EV. It's Volkswagen that are way ahead. Um, and it's not just way ahead in either their technology R&D or all the other stuff. It, it's, it, this is about culture. It's about, you know, the ability to be bold and brave. And that's what Herbert Dees is doing. And I'm sure there are loads of people at Wolfsburg that don't agree with him. That, you know, and you know my favorite phrase, they should just rebrand the company Volkswagen. Take the K out, put TS in. That's what they're now going to be. Um, you know, they've got the capacity to build 300,000, well, we hope if they can get the batteries, um, 300,000 ID3s, let alone everything else. You know, they're absolutely on it. Um, and it was no surprise to me that that announcement, um, which whether it was kind of engineered that way, but knowing, as you, you know, you know Elon better than I do, he probably wasn't supposed to say that, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions. Is, is, was it planned and he just said no, it awkwardly or was. was it, or was it not planned and Elon just couldn't hold his tongue? Well, you know, Elon's Elon, isn't he? So I suspect on the side of the stage, the PR team was probably apoplectic. They were just like, Oh God, we told him not to say this, uh, but you know, he just does and so the MC on the day who who looked very kind of overwhelmed by it all but all credit to the lad because he he got that announcement out of Elon and um you know uh, yeah I think it's an incredible moment in time and he's sharing the stage with Herbert Deese and the closest car factory to that uh, to, to a Berlin location is VW there will be lots of reasons why it's there money will be a part of it and as you say you know political things etc um well, there was one, I, I like keep going, but there was one thing that I read was that he required that the factory be able to be built as quickly as the gigafactory in China. Like that was a stipulation for locating it. I don't, I don't know if this is confirmed, but I, I saw this. I don't know, but keep going. Well, it wouldn't surprise us, would it? Let, let's be honest. You know, you, you look at the impatience and, and the kind of absolute rigor to which he goes at these things. Yeah, there wouldn't be a surprise. Should it have been in Poland? I'm sure you would have liked that. Should it have been in England? My heart would have loved it to be in England, but in reality, that was never going to happen. Yeah. Um, I love was the, an opportunity. You know? I love the discussion, and it was our Tesla shuttle route that we launched. The first route was uh, Wrocław to Berlin. It's a very <laughs> big, big route, so I, I'm like, hey, look at that. We can have a lot of Tesla shuttle <laughs> shuttle business, and you know, I live in, I have a home in Wrocław. We might be living there again, uh, which is a couple hours, a few hours from. From, from Berlin, you know, we we had a writer, my, my best friend in Poland, Jacek Fior, who who wrote the case for for Poland, which I thought was really compelling, way more compelling than I would have imagined. Uh, but at the end of the day, I love the I love the Berlin decision. I think it's brilliant. I just think it's putting in pulling in all the factors. It's just mon like you said, monumental. Yeah, and you know, it's whether these things are arranged. I, I don't know. They just do so. On the same day as that announcement, there's Ola Kalenius in London with the big, you know, institutional shareholders and all that sort of stuff, having to explain that the next number of years at Daimler are going to be, you know, challenging because of this shift to EV. Um, and only recently before that, announcing a thousand job cuts in middle management. And, and you see, th this is where the tectonic plates of change for the internal combustion engine uh, industry are happening. They're bashing into each other and they're now having consequences. 
and, and the know, thing I almost mentioned earlier too, when you mentioned Dan Daimler's cuts or statements about, it's just they had a big share of Tesla, and they, they, they. I mean, they. I mean, Elon has said in the past, uh, Tesla would not exist if not for Daimler. They, they saved uh, Tesla at a critical time with their investments and their their partnerships, uh, and it's just. Uh, it's just like one of those, like, I, I have plenty of kick me, you know, damn it, why did I pull money out then? Why did I put money in then, not then, whatever, you know? But, man, I would feel really freaking bad and have a hard time right now if I was uh, at Daimler and was involved in getting the full investment out of Tesla instead of keeping <laughs> keeping at least some of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you know, I, I mentioned, have you read the book Good to Great? I have not, no. It was written 20 years ago, so about then. So it's it's been a very influential book. I've only recently read it because my son reads books and said, Dad, read this because you talk a lot of rubbish and this will help you <laughs> a bit less rubbish. Um, love- because, because what it does, a case study of lots of American companies that were good, but then became great. How did they become great? They, they could see what was changing in their industry and they prepared for it. And rather than become, you know, um, part of the problem or, or remain the problem, they became part of the solution. Um, and, and it goes through these companies pretty forensically. You know, how did this happen? Great leadership, singular vision. You know the phrase, the wrong people on the bus? You know, you rather get the right people on the bus? Comes from that book. That's, that's where that phrase comes from, that book. So you've got well, to have the right people on the bus and you know uh, or if then on the bus and they're the wrong people they might be in the wrong seat you know so it, it's getting people to do the stuff they're best at and you create that magic and that's not what we've got in a lot of oems it's full of lots of people who earn lots of money with lovely pension funds and schemes and you know it's all very safe they don't have to make decisions just keep doing the same thing we did last year next year on and on and it creates a corporate culture of just total inertia yeah no i i've totally when you were talked about this earlier in the episode i was almost chimed in because uh i love science i love scientific uh, research i love you know stuff that's not just a, an assumption or a commonly said phrase that doesn't have any proof to back it up and w- one of the the research studies that maybe the study that most stuck with me from EVS tw- uh, 27 in Barcelona in 2013 was this guy had dove you know academic research he dove into all these automakers at a very deep level over decades and looked at what you know at what was the what was the real reason for them changing in various ways that helped or, or hurt them and it all came down to leadership. It all came down to having a CEO come in who was ready to make bold. Everything you're talking about, <laughs> basically, it just fully backed up your your statements on this twice on this episode. That it's all about having that bold vision, that leadership, having the bravery to break through that culture of of fear of of you know keep things at business as usual, and making the company change, making it have. A, a significant shift and you know you you mentioned that with dice um uh i think you really this is a moment in the automotive history where you're gonna you're gonna see that play out very strongly right <laughs> I, I absolutely be- think so to give you something i think maybe you could even say out of that book out of the case studies in that book that's prescient of the auto industry a company called kimberly clark kimberly clark had been around for decades and essentially it'd been a company built around owning paper mills 
That's what they were. That's who Kimberly Clark were. They were paper mills. That was their business. So I can't remember the exact turn of events, but then they has a new guy in charge and he's building a team and he spends time listening to people and looking at the market and thinking, you know, in not too complex a way without being bombarded with consultants and reports and whatever, just thinking things through logically and talking to customers. And he then has apparently quite a famous meeting where he gets everybody in the board together and he says, this is going to be our strategy. This is the core part of our strategy. We're going to sell the paper mills. And everyone's like, but that's who we are. That's what we do. And he explained what he thought was coming down the line from all the people he'd taken counsel with, mainly customers and people in the company, people on the shop floor and the like and all that stuff. And they made exactly the right decision at exactly the right time, divested themselves of essentially the past and built the future and then became a spectacularly successful company. But to do what he did at that time was almost like, you know, heresy. so, so well, I, I'm no expert. I'm no expert on Amazon, but to come back to Amazon for a second, what I've seen some some interesting writing I've seen on on that is uh, obviously it's known for its web retail. You know, it's one out of four dollars spent in the U.S. now is spent on Amazon. I think uh, so. It's known for that, but it's also it got sort of trashed and and shorted for a long time for not making a profit despite having growing <laughs> uh, revenues and and all of that. And one thing I've seen someone write that didn't get on the Amazon you know, investment bandwagon to really profit from it, but retrospectively saw this as really critical, is that they got into you know, uh, Amazon Web Services. They got into hosting yeah. and all, of the, and all the, 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 you know, the dirty backroom uh, you know, factories, warehouses, you know, data centers that are behind Amazon. And that Amazon Web Services brings in a lot of their profits because it's they took that you know leadership position, that bold move to say, "Hey, this is what we need. A lot more people are going, companies are going to need this. Let's build this out. Let's let's make this a a, a big part of our business." And uh, so it's kind of you know something that doesn't get really mentioned much when you think about Amazon success, but uh, is seen as quite important by some at least some investors. But uh, well, to wrap up. We've talked Ford, we've talked Benchmark Minerals and Lithium, we've talked uh, uh, Tesla. What, any final thoughts on any of those topics or, or any big takeaways uh, for, for the end of EV Boom episode one? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's that people should broaden their reach, have a good network, collaborate in their thinking with people. Um, look, Zach, let's be honest, you know my favorite medium, it's LinkedIn. So LinkedIn has has given me personally a ton of stuff over the years on those principles. And I think I would say to people, it's a good tool to continue using, trying to look at the whole kind of ecosystem of mobility, um, not just electric cars, the whole thing, as you were mentioning earlier, electric scooters and electric two-wheelers, what, there's something like 300 million two-wheeled electric vehicles in China now. I mean, it's just epic. Um, and I think I think what we now will see is quicker momentum, exponential um, development, because those collaborations are being put together, or they've now been together for some time. They're very, um, they're going to be very liberating, both for the technology and the business models, you know, and I'm thinking of things like Rivian and Amazon and Ford and those sort of things. Uh, and Volkswagen and Tesla, you know, these are people, they're taking their partners on the dance floor 
And um, quite frankly, if you don't get on with doing that, you end up with the ugly one. Um, so if you want, you know, the right dance partner, my message to anyone out of all we've kind of been talking to is you better get on with it because before too long, you're just going to be left with the people that maybe you wouldn't really want to dance with, if that great. makes sense. That's great. Great, great ending. Thank you, Roger. Enjoy Los Angeles. Uh, I, I assume next time we chat, you'll be back in UK, um, but uh, enjoy your, your trip and meeting with all those uh, movers and shakers in person. Well, I'm speaking to one right now, so I'm just thrilled <laughs> to be part of your gig. And, you know, you're a guy that you know gets on with it and says, you know, important and interesting stuff. And, um, yeah, no, look, I'm proud that you're my friend. I'd like to, you know, thank you, Roger. I think we're going on into, you know, the stuff that's changing nice and quickly now. It's good. Thank you, Roger. I think you and I do the same thing. We just follow what, what we find interesting and we, we make, make a career out of it. <laughs> well, we try. We yeah. try. All right. Well, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers, Zach. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.